Major Lindsay in Africa presents Erasing the Stigma, conversations about mental health in the legal profession. Everyone, welcome to the inaugural uh, podcast, Erasing the Stigma, conversations about mental health and mental illness in the legal profession. I am honored that my first guest is Patrick Krill from Krill Strategies. Patrick is one of the foremost experts in mental health and substance abuse issues and and strategies in the legal profession. Patrick, first, welcome. And would you like to spend a moment talking about um, what you've been doing in this this vital area of interest? Yeah, so good afternoon, Mark, and thank you for the invitation to join you on this inaugural podcast of this series. It's really a pleasure to be with you. Um, I will give your listeners just a a sort of brief overview of my professional background and hopefully help them understand why it is that I'm here talking with you about these issues today. I am a a former practicing attorney. I'm licensed to practice law in California, but for the last roughly 10 years now, uh, a little bit more than that, I've been focused on behavioral health in the legal profession. And when I say focused on, I mean working in this area. I went back to school and I earned a master's degree in addiction counseling, and I ultimately became the director of a treatment program for lawyers, judges, and law students at the Hazel and Betty Ford Foundation. And uh, following my time at Hazel and Betty Ford, I went on to launch a consulting firm, and I now advise primarily large law firms, increasingly um, corporate legal departments in three sort of realms, if you will. One is education. So I spend a fair amount of time speaking to lawyers and helping them understand addiction, mental health problems, and overall well-being related issues. The second area that I work in, you could broadly define as sort of risk management or strategic planning. And and I, I help firms develop programs and help them build out resources and infrastructure to help their people. And then the third area that I work in is crisis management, which is very much what it sounds like. It's not uncommon for my clients to call me uh, when they have an attorney or sometimes a staff member at the firm who's struggling and that the organization needs some direction on how to handle the situation, how to help the person. Sometimes it's how to reintegrate them back to the firm after they've been out getting some treatment. And that that work specifically really does draw upon my clinical experience counseling lawyers and really sort of being up close and personal with people who are in a state of crisis. And so that's kind of a a quick overview of of where I've been professionally. The other thing that I should say, and this will certainly be relevant to our conversation today, I imagine, is that I've been doing a fair amount of research and advocacy over the last decade as well. Um, including a large study which gives us our clearest understanding of the prevalence of the problems that that you and I are going to be talking about. So, so that's who I am and why it is that I'm joining you on this podcast, but I'm looking forward to our discussion. Well, that was a fabulous overview and inordinately succinct, which um, given the, the, the powerful um, magnitude of your resume is, is impressive. And I think uh, my first question really is the mental health and wellness issues in the legal profession are getting a lot of attention right now. What led you 10 years ago 
to recognize this and, and, and gravitate towards this field? Yeah, so it's a, it's a great question. Um, I was I was drawn to the work really for a variety of reasons. One, I w I'll say, I was not experiencing the level of career satisfaction or fulfillment um, in the legal profession that I had hoped for. I think, and I, I've come to realize through the lens of hindsight that in many ways I was a lawyer by default, and I'm someone who I have an LLM in international law. And now, even as I look back on that, I sometimes think that I went for my LLM to delay practicing law because I was realizing after, you know, summering at a large firm that that wasn't something that I really wanted to do. But I mean, these are all things that you come, like I said, to, to realize and understand about yourself through the lens of hindsight. And so I wasn't really finding a career in the legal profession to be what I had hoped for or thought it would be. And I did have other passions and uh, I did have other personal experiences. And I am somebody who had been, uh, you know, who had received treatment myself earlier in my life and in my um, career. And so I sort of knew of helping professions and I knew of therapists and psychologists and addiction counselors. And so I, I had a sense that that might be an area that aligned more fully with with who I was and what I was trying to accomplish professionally. At the same time, I absolutely did not want to just throw away my years in the legal profession or my education or my relationships. I I love the legal profession. I just didn't really enjoy practicing law. And so when I gravitated towards counseling, I, I knew immediately that I wanted to marry the two fields and that I wanted to bring together my new career path with my prior career path. And it was clear to me uh, from having worked in the legal profession and just sort of observed uh, some things in going back to law school, that there were a lot of behavioral health challenges in the legal profession. But you're right in so much as we did not have a great understanding and the issues were certainly not sort of on the surface and we weren't discussing them in an open way. Um, and so I guess I was ahead of the curve in that regard, but uh, the problems have been there for a while. We just weren't talking about them. Yes, and I think that's one of the, the reasons why we were drawn to this, this topic and, and in particular the reason for this for this podcast, especially from my own experience of, of wrestling with these issues over the last two decades and recognizing that they simply weren't talked about, but they were were prevalent. It, it's exciting to see that people with a passion and expertise are able to, to, to now talk about what's going on in the legal profession from a mental wellness perspective so openly. One of the things that seems to be a catalyst for the discussion um, that's going on in the profession today, and I would still describe it as nascent and embryonic in terms of a real discussion and deep Correct. discussion about the about the causative factors, the the modalities for treatment, and and in ways in which you erase the stigma is that the study that, that I think you helped guide with the ABA and Hazelden has uh, created a, a, a much larger level of awareness. Can you talk about that study? First, how it came about 
and then we can talk more specifically about some of the lessons or or at least um, um, trends that emerged from the study because it, because I've read it, it's significant and it's gotten really a lot of attention because it's the first really major study on this topic in a very long time and it's and if not you know the first time ever. Sure. So it, it's it's actually sort of a funny story how the how the study came to be at least what the primary sort of impetus was. Uh, I as I mentioned I'm I'm somebody who's been doing research and advocacy around these issues um, for the last decade dating back to my time at Hazel and Betty Ford and I would write I would write a fair amount of articles and I would give talks and I would try to move the conversation in the legal profession forward at any given any opportunity. And I wrote an article for a legal trade publication. I want to say this was in 2014. And at the time, I was making the argument that the problems that we faced as a profession were prevalent and really needed to be receiving far more attention than they currently were. Uh, but there was a paucity of data. There were some limited studies. Um, Dr. Andy Benjamin um, at the University of Washington has done some pioneering work in this field. And he had, had conducted some studies going back to the 90s, uh, but they were dated, unfortunately. I mean, you know, 25 years old, roughly, uh, and of a more limited nature drawn from only uh, individual states. And there was, you know, a, there were a handful of other data points scattered around. But long story short, there wasn't the type of credible uh, data, current data, I should say, that you could really build a strong advocacy case upon. Um, so I wrote this article. I cited the old statistics, you know, that lawyers are twice as addicted as the general population, et cetera, et cetera. And I was, I thought it was a great article, and I thought I made the case as well as I could, given the facts that I had to draw from. And I got a call from a senior partner at a very prominent uh, global law firm, and you know he had he had left a, a a message on my office voicemail and said something to the effect of, you know, Patrick, I read your article in so and so publication. Please give me a call. And I thought, well, this is fantastic. Somebody, you know, at this at this prominent firm wants to, you know, give me kudos for this this great article that I had written about the challenges that we need to overcome in the legal profession. I called him, and it was the exact opposite. He actually gave me what you might describe as an earful. Uh, how dare you malign the legal profession and suggest that lawyers are twice as addicted? And you know, the the data is. Is, is really shoddy, et cetera, and essentially basically just sort of tore into me. And so it wasn't the type of reaction that I had <laughs> been hoping for, right, as you might imagine. It, was, it came as a bit of a surprise. Afterwards, however, I was reflecting on his call, and I had a couple of thoughts. One, I mean, this sounded like somebody who was in his own level, experiencing his own levels of distress, and I hope he certainly worked through that, but but secondarily, he had a point on the merits that the data wasn't great. And so I, I sought to to correct that, and I sort of set out to, to look for ways to help us find the data that actually, to, to really collect the data, I should say, that we knew was out there. Lawyer assistance programs have known for decades 
that these problems were truly significant. The limited research that was available showed that these problems were truly significant. Legal malpractice carriers, other stakeholders, it was not really uh, you know, that much of a surprise to those people sort of on the front lines, uh, but we didn't have the data. So I approached the ADA and we were able to form a partnership for this research project between the American Bar Association and Hazel and Betty Ford. Um, and through that, that, that sort of partnership, <clears throat> excuse me, we ended up launching a national study where we surveyed 15,000 lawyers across 19 states and, and really got a, a comprehensive and I think, uh, you know, really meaningful data set to examine these issues. I think that was a, a very meaningful uh, step in what I would call legitimizing the issue in a way that couldn't be subject to sort of anecdotal refutation. Because I think that there is a tendency and has been a tendency to be defensive about the profession as I've talked to people. But the the data-driven elements of of that survey have made some of those arguments about, quote, maligning the profession or relying on anecdotes. Um, they, they have rendered them in some ways largely moot, um, except to extreme skeptics. You can't tackle a problem, at least not in an intelligible and, and sort of efficacious way, if you don't understand the full scope and contours of that problem. And that's what we really needed to do, is to understand the scope and the contours of the problem. That said, uh, either the reactions of the study over the course of the last several years has been interesting because I'll have some people tell me, people who are kind of out there in the trenches, maybe they're HR in a law firm, or they are a dean of students at a law school, or they are, you know, a malpractice carrier lawyer assistance program clinician, who remain convinced that our findings are essentially uh, an understatement of the problem, right? That they think that it, it almost somebody said to me, you know, those those, those statistics lowball the problem. That someone just said that to me last week, and you have others who who really perhaps haven't had their antenna up or just wouldn't have known what to look for or, or really wouldn't see these things around them who remain surprised, right? And then you have others who, like me, I, I think the numbers were about what I expected. When you say about what you expected, are you talking about the results? Are you talking about the number of survey participants? Oh, no, I'm talking about the results. Right, that roughly a third of lawyers uh, endorse symptoms of depression currently. You know, that roughly between a fifth and a third of lawyers screened positive for a for a problematic relationship with alcohol. Uh, you know, that's that struck me as about about right. So, what was uh, wh what was it that made you feel like those numbers? Were, were were sort of aligned with, the actual numbers were aligned with, with what you thought they might be? It was, it was really my experience, both, you know, in terms of what I had observed in the profession, but also through counseling lawyers at, at Hazel and Betty Ford and hearing their stories and, and hearing them relay to me sort of their observations and experiences from their work environments. And I counseled a lot of lawyers, a lot of lawyers from 
mid-size and large law firms. And so, you know, I would hear their experiences and, and you know, they, they would be describing for me the environments from which they had come to treatment. And it, I just really did eventually build this composite view of the landscape out there. Um, and, you know, I just, on alcohol use specifically, right? I don't think anyone who is more than a casual observer of the legal profession wouldn't note that there is a very um, close relationship between the legal profession and alcohol. It's, it's, it's woven into the fabric of the profession in such a significant way that differs from other industries at this point, certainly in 2019. I'm not talking about historically in kind of the madman days and where perhaps anybody at a bank or a, a Fortune 500 company or you know, a variety of other settings may have had a, a bar cart in their office. But I'm talking about the, today, um, the legal profession remains um, very closely aligned with uh, the normalized and regular use of alcohol. Um, so that was just sort of what I was expecting. Uh, the, the depression, I saw so many attorneys come to treatment with what we call co-occurring disorders. So they would present to treatment at Hazel and Betty Ford, which is primarily an addiction treatment center, but certainly we treated mental health disorders as well, uh, with an addiction as being primary, but there was also depression, or there was also anxiety, or there was also depression and anxiety. Um, and so it was clear to me that a lot of lawyers out there were struggling uh, with their mental health in addition to problematic substance use. So as I read the study, it seems as if that a lot of these issues manifest themselves kind of surprising to me as lawyers that have been in practice less than 10 years versus lawyers who have been in practice for a long time. Is, is my interpretation of the results consistent with how you understand they came out? That finding was surprising um, to, to all of us, uh, primarily because we had gone into the research essentially with uh, a hypothesis, if you will, that it would be older lawyers who were experiencing higher levels of distress. That is what the older, more limited data revealed. It was also what I was observing, you know, that was that aligned with the, the patient profile coming to treatment. It was typically what lawyer assistance programs were seeing, you know, older attorneys. And it also aligned with sort of a common sense understanding of the problem, right? That the longer you're in the profession, the more likely you are to essentially be worn down by it or to experience uh, a toll on your health as a result of kind of a, a long term buildup of that stress. Um, so we were surprised that it was younger attorneys in the first 10 years of practice who had the highest rates of problem drinking and mental health distress. Um, but, you know, at the same time, that also aligns with trends that we're seeing in society as a whole, where younger people are struggling more um, than, in, than in prior generations. And, and certainly, the landscape in the legal profession has changed over the last couple of decades in the sense of people graduating from law school with more debt, um, you know, arguably uh, less prospects for finding a job and, and just generally more, more stress. So there are certainly things that you could point to which would account for that finding. Um, and, and an important caveat that I should say, you're right, Mark, and it was, 
I think one of the primary findings that is younger attorneys in the first 10 years who are struggling the most, but that is not to suggest that the levels of depression symptoms or anxiety symptoms or problematic substance use are where we would want them to be among older attorneys either, right? Those right. levels were right. also so the elevated. Macro, so the macro conclusion is that the problem is pervasive. The trend indicates 100%. A, high, a higher rate among younger attorneys, but the, the counter argument isn't that there's an acceptable rate among older attorneys. It's still a problem. It's just a question of magnitude. If I, if, if I read the study that way. Yep, that's exactly right. And there's also, not to, to belabor the, this point specifically, but you could also make the case, I can't prove this empirically, but you could also make the case that perhaps the younger attorneys were simply more candid or more, you know, they were more forthcoming or more aware of their distress symptoms or experiencing less denial, right? So well, that's, that's, a, that's part, part of it. That's a fabulous point. And, and, and to me, that's one of the things that I wondered about as I read the study is whether or not, you know, attorneys that, that push past that 10 year uh, boundary and, and, and push into their 40s and 50s would be as willing to be as open about their issues as perhaps the younger attorneys. And I don't know that we'll ever be able to really know that. But I wondered if that was something that had actually gone through sort of your think stream as you looked at the results. Um, we won't, we, yeah, you're right you, in the sense we won't truly be able to know that, but we will be able to develop some insight into it. Uh, there is a need for additional and ongoing research. I'm, you know, I, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but certainly I have some, some plans and I'm and talking with various stakeholders in the profession about conducting additional research, right? This cannot be the only data that we have to inform this conversation moving forward. And so I think, you know, as data continues to be collected and published over the next five, 10 years, uh, we'll be able to maybe more clearly understand some of those trends. When you, when, when you conducted this study and you looked at depression versus anxiety, um, and I view substance abuse as almost sort of a constant sort of theme just percolating in the background. Were there any um, gender differences in rates of depression versus rates of anxiety? I, I, I sense that from my reading of the study, but, but I'm not sure it was flushed out as explicitly as, as, as I might have thought. You know, it's an interesting point there. One of the for anybody who has never published a, a scientific study or you know sought to have their study published in a journal, one of the frustrating things you come up against, or at least it was frustrating for me, is word limit, right? And so you have to choose what can go in the manuscript and, and what, what doesn't. Um, if we weren't constricted to the, uh, the number of words that we were, we could have covered more ground. Um, but there were some really interesting findings in there. I think for purposes of this conversation, the one that I would really note um, that, that stood out to me and others was that the levels of depression among male attorneys or the, the, num the levels of depressive symptoms among male attorneys were higher. It was higher than females, so, uh, which is surprising 
because that's the exact reverse of what you find in the general population. In the general population, depression is more prevalent among women than men. Um, but that is not what we found. We found the opposite of that among attorneys. I can't tell you why from the data, but it's a notable finding nonetheless. So as I understand it, really what happened is the study occurred, there was a national task force, and that kind of cascaded down from the task force level to the state level, where a lot of the grassroots and sort of work in the trenches occurs at the local and state bar levels and, and organizational levels. And then the ABA on a parallel track had a had a working group and it came out with the ABA Wellbeing Pledge. And I'd love for you to talk about some of the highlights of, of, of what's in the Wellbeing Pledge and how you think it's going to impact addressing the, these important issues. Yeah, so I'd be happy to. This is the the ABA Wellbeing Pledge is um, an initiative which I'm very uh, sort of fond of, for lack of a better term. It was sort of my my well, it was my idea, but it, it's been sort of a passion project of mine for the last five years. Believe it or not, the first time I proposed the idea of a pledge uh, for legal employers, Mark was about five years ago, again, going back to roughly 2014, I was giving a talk to a, a ballroom full of lawyers about addiction and mental health and some of the changes that needed to occur in the legal profession. And I had these slides and I was going through these various steps of a pledge framework that I had conceptualized. And I was kind of you know, bouncing the idea off of this ballroom full of lawyers, as I said, saying, we should start a pledge campaign and get the legal get legal employers to say they're going to do X, Y, and Z to support their people and to overcome these high levels of depression, addiction, et cetera. At the time, we didn't have the data, so maybe that's why I got the reaction that I got, which was a lot of skepticism and actually some laughter from the audience. So, you know, it's fine. I guess what I was proposing at the time was um, probably sounded like it was um, – perhaps a bit too aggressive for the problem as people understood it, or, or maybe people just thought it was totally unrealistic. Um, but uh, I remained convinced that we did actually need to have some mechanism by which legal employers could publicly affirm their commitment to these issues and also be held somewhat accountable, right? We needed them to make a commitment that they would do certain things, or at least endeavor to do certain things. Um, so when I was appointed to the ADA President's Working Group and we were thinking of ideas, our, our, our charter, our, our task was to come up with ideas that could advance the conversation in the legal employer realm specifically. Um, and so I, I resurrected this idea and I said, I, what about a pledge campaign? Uh, and, and I sort of brought the idea to the group and they loved it and were very supportive. And we used that working group to launch it, right? And September of 2018, so one year ago, is when we launched that campaign. Um, and we had 12 law firms on board at the time, uh, many of whom happened to be my clients. And so I had the ability to go to them and say, would you like to support this? And they all thought, it sounded like a great idea and they saw the, the value in it. Um, and so we launched with 12 law firms behind the initiative. And over the course of the last year, it's grown to at 
last count, I believe we're up to about 140 organizations, which now includes corporate legal departments and law schools, have signed on and said, we are going to do these things. And without going into each point, I guess I could summarize it by saying, it's a framework. It's a seven-step framework. I originally conceptualized it as a 10-step framework, but my work with the working group, we decided to kind of refine it down to seven points, condense it a bit. Um, and it's a seven-point framework that touches upon everything from education to policies to culture. And it really provides sort of immediate-term action steps that legal employers can pursue with the goal of A, reducing the incidence of the problems in the first place, but B, just generally supporting the health and well-being of their people. Um, and so I'm, I'm really gratified by the fact that this is a campaign which is out there and has significant momentum at this point. I mean, we have the majority of, for example, the AMLAW 100 law firms who are signatories to this. We, we have a, a significant number of, of signatories and we're continuing to gain more interest and have more people reach out about it weekly, a year later. So I think it has the potential to be a vehicle for cultural change. That's the way I like to describe it. I don't think it's a panacea and I don't think it's a silver bullet and we can talk about this. I'd be very curious what your reaction is. I don't think it is, you know, all we need to do and it's not going to solve all of the profession's problems, but it is a vehicle for change. And the more organizations make the commitment and, you know, try to live out that commitment through the provision of resources and generally supporting their people, I'm hopeful that we'll get to a different place where the culture of the profession looks at least a little bit different in a few years. As addressing the problem versus taking on more cultural, structural issues about what creates an environment that's right for um, substance abuse, depression, anxiety, and, and what what's your perception is as to what you've seen in response to the pledge in terms of addressing structural change? Yeah, so great question. And one of the criticisms, and I don't think it's been a widespread criticism, but but one of the one of the things that's been said about the pledge campaign uh, by some is that it essentially creates a veneer of progress. It allows firms to take more superficial steps uh, that maybe aren't getting at the, the really sort of structural challenges. And I, I think we need to realize that it's not either or, it's, it's both. We need to do both things. We need to provide resources and education and raise awareness and, and begin to change the, the culture and destigmatize these issues um, while also looking at the structural challenges that are the true drivers of the problems in the first place. Uh, I think it is a mistake if firms focus too much on the, the sort of quick fix or more superficial uh, approach. I think that they need to deploy resources and need to make sure their people can get help and feel comfortable getting help and that they understand the issues and, and all of the things that the pledge framework contemplates. Uh, but they also need to simultaneously be talking at the leadership level about what are some additional things that we can do 
to to change the environment and the structure of the of the profession and even our own business models that are like I said the drivers. So it's it shouldn't be one or the other. It really does need to be sort of a dual track approach. Um, I wrote an article a few years ago now at this at this point where I talked about that very issue. Um, this was prior to the pledge actually coming online. Uh, but I but I wrote about the fact that people who are truly struggling with a mental health problem aren't going to benefit from a lot of yoga, right? And and other now can yoga be very helpful in managing anxiety and and managing symptoms of depression and just generally a great form of self care? Yes, absolutely. And the same could be said for mindfulness meditation. Um, but you know, too much focus on those types of things. Um, at the exclusion of a deeper dive into the the more serious challenges is is a mistake. So that being said, when you're working with your clients and you're talking about the the meteor side of this, which is the addressing the structural and cultural elements, what are some of the things? or exercises you take them through to, to, to really figure out how to address that issue because it's a fairly major paradigm shift both in thinking and in, in, in sort of the firm mores and belief system. How, how do you approach that? Because that's a, that's, a, that's a really daunting challenge. At least it seems to me that it would be. It is a daunting challenge and there's not an easy there's not an easy resolution to it. It, it requires um, some back and forth and really thoughtful discussion and examination, not only of the challenges, but also the firm's goals um, and a, what it views as realistic, what it views as priorities. Uh, so there's almost sort of an audit process that I walk firms through and helping them understand those issues. You know, what are the priorities? What are their goals? What do they think is realistic? Um, but it requires, like I said, some some thoughtful back and forth and, and discussion. And because these are issues that, for example, an executive committee or a management committee, they may need to grapple with, and there there may not be consensus about a whether the firm should be doing more or b how it should do it, um, or or c what the real goals are. Um, and it's it's vitally important to. And I and I try to do this to help my clients reach that internal consist that internal consensus at the leadership level, so that they feel like they have buy-in, they have a vision, they have direction. Uh, but it's a process. It, it is really a process because, and I'm sure this won't be lost on you, and you'd probably agree with this. Not everybody is going to be fully on board in a law firm or in a law firm leadership structure. You're going to have people who are passionate about it, who understand that the promotion of well-being is a very important and should be a very important strategic priority for the organization, but you're going to have other people who just don't see it that way or are less convinced and may even resist the idea. And so it's, it's a matter of helping them get on the same page and identify you know, how they'd like to move forward. Well, I can say as someone who, who practiced within a firm ecosystem for 20 plus years, uh, was responsible for a significant practice group and in firm leadership, 
that there is a significant component of firm leaders who are tone deaf um, and who do subscribe to the mantra that lawyers are supposed to be tough and resilient and not need um, this type of this type of help. And I think you know we're still dealing with the long-term consequences of that belief system. Can you share for me um, or give me some examples of some of the more successful um, instances where firms have really done some meaningful work? Sure. Uh, well, you know, without you know, obviously sharing firm names, certainly without their without their consent, um, I would say that the, the clients, the firms that I work with, they are sort of all over the spectrum as it relates to well-being. I work with some firms who are really in the beginning stages. Um, and I'm there to try and help them on that journey and to, to try and help them maintain their momentum and motivation to, to make progress. And other firms are kind of somewhere in the middle. And then there are some firms that I've been working with who you could barely and objectively categorize as progressive and, and very even aggressive around wanting to tackle these issues. Um, I would say that the really successful initiatives recognize a few things. One, that this is a long-term proposition. This is not a trend, it's not a phase, it's not something to just kind of check a box around, right? This is about initiating and then seeking to facilitate a cultural change within an organization and ultimately within the profession. It's a long-term process. Um, two, they recognize that people are people are struggling now and that they need to create an environment that those people feel more comfortable stepping forward to, to get the help that they need. Um, and they also recognize that, that they have to de devote some resources and bandwidth. I mean, that they have to kind of walk the walk. Um, and whether that is devoting significant resources to education or counseling or or hiring additional staff, or you know, if if that's not the case, then just looking for every opportunity to weave messaging into um, events at the firm, and to really kind of to really approach this with 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 buy-in and, and with demonstrated commitment. So, um, I, I've worked with and I'm working with a couple of firms that have had a lot of progress in making people more comfortable seeking help. I'll put it that way. They have people who are stepping forward and saying, I need help and, you know, help me, help me get to a better place in a way that is significantly different than it, than a few years ago. Right. So they've been able to cultivate an environment where people feel safe, where people feel safe getting help. Um, and, and they're doing it in a way that's not disrupting business operations. And those are the, those are the stories that certainly, um, you know, encourage me and, and make me feel really are, good about all the progress that we're making. And those are certainly some of the best outcomes that you can have, that people feel safe and empowered to seek help. If, if you think about the, the impact of, of, of therapy, um, um, pharmacotherapy, psychotherapy, and you look at whether or not people feel comfortable getting people to comfort level and seeking help is one of the best outcomes you could hope for because once they start getting help, it certainly changes the trajectory of how they may deal with substance abuse and mental health and mental well-being issues. 
Exactly. Well, Patrick, you have been most generous with your time, and I am deeply appreciative that you have been our first guest, especially with all of the work you've done kind of creating awareness at a national and local level and in architecting some of the infrastructure that's addressing these problems. I hope um, in the future you'll come back and tell us about your additional research and efforts. And um, we are very grateful to have you in the profession and very grateful to have you as our first guest. Thank you so very much for your time. Well, thank you, Mark. I appreciate the kind words. I appreciate your support of and advocacy for change in the profession. And I'm delighted to have spent the hour with you. And I, I hope that this conversation reaches people and that they and that they find it useful. So thank you. Well, take care, be well, and keep us posted on your research. Thank you for listening today. I hope you found this conversation as engaging as I have. It's our goal to bring you a variety of guests who have viewpoints, topics, and experiences to share on the issue of mental health and mental wellness in the legal profession. Please join us again in a couple of weeks when we'll have another fascinating guest on to discuss the state of mental health and wellness in our chosen profession. Discover how Major Lindsay in Africa can help you navigate the legal landscape at www.mlaglobal.com.